podcast family, I went back and forth whether I was going to do a podcast on this soon-to-be-released article or not. Because the truth is, I just don't like this study. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. But it's not up to me to like the data. It's up to me. It's my role to present the data and have you make your own conclusions. Now, let me give you a little spoiler alert that at the end, I am going to give you my version, my commentary on this because, well, I I just don't like this study. But nonetheless, it's going to be coming out in the Gray Journal soon. This article was accepted the 14th of July of 2020. The title is Aspirin Use During Pregnancy and the Risk of Bleeding Complications. This is a Swedish population-based cohort study with the lead author being Roxanne Hasty. Now, again, let me tell you, I don't really like the results here because I think it's kind of poor. <laughs> but nonetheless, it adds to the body of evidence. It's going to be in print soon and people are going to ta- start talking about it, I'm sure, because there's just not a lot of data on this issue. And here's a quick spoiler. I am a big fan of aspirin use in pregnancy, low-dose aspirin use. I think it can do a lot of good. So having said that, I'll give my commentary regarding this publication at the end. So hang in there as we cover a new publication from the Gray Journal on aspirin use during pregnancy and the risk of bleeding complications. Hey, this is Beth, labor and delivery nurse in College Station, Texas, and this is Clinical Pearls. Low-dose aspirin for the prevention of preeclampsia has been studied for over 25 years, and although the highest recommendation is for use in women with the highest risk of developing preeclampsia, there's reasonable evidence that even women with a modest increased risk of preeclampsia development can benefit. There's a range in studies and a range of recommended dosages, however, from 81 milligrams to 100 to 150 milligrams at its highest dose. There's also evidence that in women who do get preeclampsia or at risk of its development, its use can decrease the risk of iatrogenic preterm birth and can also reduce the risk of IUGR. So this has pushed now the recommendation by some to give aspirin universally. Currently, ACOG still recommends using a risk factor-based approach for the use of aspirin, but again, this literature is changing with a lot of people recommending universal use. The OBGYN residency program in Houston, for example, is using universal use of aspirin in pregnancy because it's considered relatively low risk but high yield. Now, before we get into this new study, I want to go over briefly how aspirin is thought to help this whole issue anyway, because we've got to keep that in mind. Currently, the rationale for using aspirin to prevent preeclampsia lies with its ability to inhibit platelet production of thromboxane and block NFKB, that's NFKB. This is a protein complex that plays a role in systemic and or decidual inflammation. Now, there likely are numerous mechanisms of action. However, some that improve placentation can be included. Remember that ACOG states that the most benefit seems to be at starting use before 16 weeks of pregnancy, but it does recommend starting any time when the patient presents between 16 and up to 28 weeks gestation. 
As previously stated, the recommended dose for low-dose aspirin use in pregnancy is 75 milligrams up to 150 milligrams daily, starting from 12 weeks of gestation and continuing all the way until birth. Given the perceived safety of aspirin during pregnancy, there's been increasing calls to simply administer aspirin universally to all pregnant women. A cost-effective analysis published in 2019 theorized that universal administration could prevent up to 346 cases of preeclampsia and have substantial cost savings compared to the current U.S. Preventative Service Task Force guidelines. However, as the authors of this new upcoming publication in the Gray Journal state, this calculation had an underlying assumption, however, that aspirin is safe, where the authors only considered gastrointestinal bleeding and aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease as possible side effects and didn't consider the possibility of pregnancy-related bleeding complications. Now, the reason they didn't consider that is because there is no population-based studies addressing whether there's a bleeding risk with aspirin administration during pregnancy, and that's based on a literature search. So, these authors of this upcoming publication from the Gray Journal undertook a population-based register cohort study investigating whether there is an association between aspirin use and bleeding complication during pregnancy and delivery. Now, remember, this is not a randomized trial. This is a population-based register cohort study. This register-based cohort study obtained data from the Swedish Pregnancy Register and included women giving birth in Sweden from January 2013 to July 2017. This is about a four-year period. Data on aspirin use was obtained from prenatal care records, including the first prenatal visit record, which is a comprehensive record of patient information, sociodemographic data, and past medical and obstetrical history. And data was also used from each prenatal care visit. This is typically around 8 to 10 visits across pregnancy. Aspirin use during pregnancy was defined as self-reported use of aspirin at any visit during pregnancy. So there's one of the flags because this didn't ensure compliance and it was self-reported so it wasn't sure if these patients took it daily or specifically at what dose. The primary outcome was bleeding complications recorded in either the prenatal or the delivery record via the Swedish version of ICD-10. So that's another flag. Remember that this is all data mining. So if information wasn't put there correctly or was transcribed correctly, then that could be a wrong code that's part of this data. Now, these authors also used neonatal intracranial hemorrhage as one of the ICD-10 codes to mine. Ugh, now I'm supposed to leave this for my commentary at the end, but that yet is another flag because they coded or they searched for an ICD-10 version of, quote, neonatal intracranial hemorrhage, end quote. But they didn't give any further detail to what that was. I mean, are these grade one IVHs that really don't mean anything? Is this a subdural hematoma? That's an intracranial hemorrhage. So what does this mean? So that's another flag is that neonatal intracranial hemorrhage was looked for, but without really giving more details on what actually that means. Now, hang in there because we're going to talk about this in the results in just a minute. All right, let's get to the results because the results are kind of wacky. Of the 30... 
All right, let's get to the results because the results are kind of wacky. The incidence of antepartum hemorrhage among women using aspirin was 2.4% compared to 1.8% among non-users. So did y'all get that? We're talking about 2.4% compared to 1.8%. That resulted in a crude odds ratio of 1.33% not really staggering. But once again, this is the data that's reported. Now, after adjusting via inverse probability treatment weighing, in other words, trying to stratify some confounding variables, what they found is that it was actually only significant for bleeding after vaginal delivery not cesarean birth. So that's kind of weird. After the data was stratified by cohorts, the association between aspirin use and bleeding was only relevant for women who delivered by vaginal delivery. Now, why it would only matter for vaginal delivery and not for C-section is not really clear because to me, that's a big flag. Why would you have increased bleeding at a vaginal birth and not the more invasive surgical intervention? But again, the authors do give a possible explanation for that, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Before we move on to the issue of intra before we move on to the issue of fetal or neonatal intracranial hemorrhage, let's talk about this bleeding rate. So we're talking about a 2.4 over a 1.8. Now remember, that is a higher number. That can be statistically significant, but that's where the difference between statistically significant and clinically significant come into play. Because as you'll read later on in the paper, it's not really that clinically significant in the long run. Regarding neonatal intracranial hemorrhage, quote, there was an association between aspirin use and neonatal intracranial hemorrhage with a 0.07% incidence among aspirin users compared to 0.01% among non-users. Yeah, you heard that right. Now, remember, even though this is an adjusted odds ratio of 9.66, this represents a incidence of 0.07%. Once again, it is a tenfold increase in the adjusted odds ratio. But is that really clinically significant? Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. Now, as we move on in this paper, and don't worry, we're almost at the end of this podcast, there's something that just doesn't make sense. And this is one of the issues with doing a data mining or a register check is that you get data that sometimes you don't know what to do with. Listen to what these authors say regarding mode of birth and aspirin use and these adverse events. Quote, an increase in postpartum hemorrhage was found among aspirin users who gave birth vaginally, but not among those who gave birth via cesarean section. Similarly, among women giving birth vaginally, those using aspirin were more likely to experience a postpartum hematoma and have an infant with neonatal intracranial hemorrhage compared to those not using aspirin. Among women who gave birth via cesarean section, no association was found between aspirin use and postpartum hematoma or neonatal intracranial hemorrhage, end quote. So it seems to be only an adverse issue for women who give birth naturally by the vagina, but not by C-section. And I'm not sure if I know why that is. And the reason that the authors give to try to explain it doesn't seem to make much sense. All right, here's what the author said to try to explain this issue between vaginal delivery and C-section. Quote, stratifying our analysis by mode of birth revealed aspirin to only be associated with an increased bleeding risk among women who birthed vaginally. 
The reason for this is not entirely clear, and although it cannot be elucidated within the present study, it does warrant further investigation. Additionally, this is what the author said, it is plausible that the association between aspirin and bleeding may be attributed to an interaction between aspirin and urotonics. In Sweden, prophylactic oxytocin at 5 to 10 international units is routinely offered to all women. Given all women receive oxytocin, it is difficult to determine whether an interaction with aspirin is an explanation for the difference in postpartum bleeding between the two modes of birth. End quote. So, I don't know what that means. In other words, why would low-dose aspirin be a bleeding risk for postpartum hemorrhage in a vaginal delivery but not C-section? I don't know. I can't figure it out. That explanation didn't make much sense to me. But remember, I'm just here to report the data. Well, as we wrap this up, what do we do with this new paper? Well, I think the biggest benefit is at least now we have this population-based study that gives us a little insight into the use of aspirin use in pregnancy. But the results that they got are kind of weird because the issue on postpartum bleeding had an increase of about 2% and the increase in, quote, intracranial hemorrhage, end quote, was really negligible in the overall real numbers. So what do you do with that? Here's what the authors recommended. They said, keep going with the risk-based algorithm for low-dose aspirin, but put the brakes on universal use until we get more data. And I think that's fair. I think that's a valid conclusion. However, I do believe that some of these adverse issues may be dose-related, and I like the 81 milligrams a day that's the more conservative approach, especially if we're going to universal use. Remember, there is evidence that the higher dose of 150 milligrams tends to be more beneficial for preeclampsia prevention. Or maybe it's a middle-of-the-road approach where you start at 150 and then decrease down to 81 as you get closer to delivery. Now, remember, that's not a formal recommendation, just throwing out possibilities of adoption here. Personally, I do like the universal 81 milligram use in pregnancy because I think it can help. But I do agree with the authors. We kind of need a lot more data regarding safety. Guys, thank you for being part of our podcast family. I look forward to our next episode. And thanks for being part of Clinical Pearls.